every time that you start to see governments complaining about the amount they have to spend on interest, tells you that they're near to a point of either artificial interest rate repression or rate cuts, and markets themselves can't cope with higher interest rates on a sustained basis because of the widespread use of leverage and, and the illiquidity. So I don't think the market appreciates that final point very well. You know, the Fed is given a lot of credit, rightly, for how they've reacted, but the Fed's tightening cycle hasn't had contact with the enemy yet. You know, they haven't been tested by a market sell-off, really, uh, or, or a recession. And it's only then that their reaction function will be revealed. And, and we're betting that they don't have the stomach uh, because they don't have political support to stay tight. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Smith, Investment Director Director at Ruffer. Ruffer is a UK asset manager managing £24 billion in a single absolute return strategy. Matt is a member of the Senior Asset Allocation Committee and one of the senior fund managers at Ruffer. Matt, uh, great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Alan. Uh, great to be here and thanks for having me on the pod. Not at all. So what we like to do uh, to start off is to get a sense on our guests' uh, background uh, and uh, route uh, to their current role in, in markets. So maybe if you could give us a bit of your background. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I um, joined Ruffa straight out of university uh, as a graduate. I studied history at university, uh, not economics like uh, most, most people in financial markets. I joined onto our institutional team and spent 2015 as an equity analyst in in Hong Kong, uh, working for Ruffer out there. And in 2017, I joined our asset allocation committee and started uh, managing portfolios. Um, I'm now a senior fund manager on two of our 
flagship funds, uh, including our fund for US institutional clients that we launched at the beginning of last year um, and a, a partner in our business. Good stuff. And maybe for people who don't know much about Ruffer, can you give us a sense on what the uh, philosophy of uh, Ruffer is and the types of portfolios you run um, and uh, you know, and the uh, types of mandates and uh, any kind of restrictions you have in terms of how you allocate capital? Yeah. So the, the short answer is that we are an absolute return manager with a single strategy and we're set up very deliberately to be completely unconstrained. Uh, that's arguably the most important thing for, for any investment manager. Um, we were founded in 1994 by Jonathan Ruffer, who wanted to improve outcomes for clients. He wanted to deliver absolute returns at a time when the industry only really offered relative returns. We're quite unusual in that our primary investment objective is to avoid losing money. Now, we're not unique, but that's, that sounds pretty unambitious. But it's, it's a lens that has allowed us to deliver positive returns through all four of the major uh, market crashes or, or bear markets since, since our inception. So it's positive returns in the dot-com bust, uh, in the great financial crisis, in March 2020, the COVID crash, uh, and also in the uh, correlated bond equity bear market of last year. And uh, how we do that is we primarily focus on the risk of losing money. Uh, most uh, participants in the industry, most investors focus on return maximization, you know, their, their constructed portfolio of return seeking assets. I hope it kind of roughly uh, blends into a solid portfolio and then they might do risk management as a kind of afterthought. Um, we start from the perspective of risk minimization. You know, what are the risks to client capital that are out there? Uh, are they risks that we need to protect against? Are there asymmetric investments that we can use to protect against them? And if the answer to those questions is yes, we'll put in place protection against those risks uh, essentially right away. That would, if we just did that, we'd be a kind of British tail hedge fund. <laughs> um, but we, we think that the key with investing uh, is to avoid timing. The, the passing of the events that you're worried about. So on top of that kind of core of protective assets, uh, and those can be protecting against regime change, uh, market change, uh, a number of different things, we will overlay onto that core what we call uh, growth assets, but essentially assets that will work if the protective assets aren't required. And by balancing those assets uh, to create a kind of all-weather portfolio, you can you can try and strip out timing from the equation. I, I think that's gives us a, a huge edge. M most people believe that they can uh, predict what's going to happen in financial markets or in the economy, but they can't resist going on to predict when it's going to happen. That's predicting the future, which is, as we know, uh, impossible by definition. Uh, we think if you strip out the timing, you, you stand a much better chance of being right. Uh, and that's how we've been able to deliver uh, returns that are roughly in line with equity markets uh, over our 28-year history, but with a volatility much more like a bond. Very good. Um, well, maybe to get into some current topics and markets, I mean, this might it's probably a good segue in terms of predictions and People getting it wrong. I mean, the the feature of this year that's probably been interesting has been the resilience of, of the U.S. economy in particular. I guess if we went back to the end of last year, 
forecast of, of recession was fairly widespread. And uh, if we went back even further, people would never have, uh, well, the majority in markets wouldn't have anticipated rates getting up to 5.5%, I think it's fair to say, in the US. Um, I mean, what do you think the consensus has been wrong and how? what's your read on the economy at this point in terms of the resilience uh, in, in the face of a tightening cycle? I think there are a number of important dynamics, um, but probably the most important one uh, is, is the degree to which financial markets are programmed to deal with uh, rates of change uh, rather than levels or programmed to focus on them. What, what does that mean? The, the level of inflation is much less important than its trajectory uh, or, or its speed. Uh, the level of interest rates uh, is much less important than the level of rates volatility. So if, if we think, if we wind back to the period of peak pain for markets, uh, sort of September last year, we're clearly at a much higher risk-free rate now than we were then, much higher level of, of real yields, slightly higher. We have now passed the, the October peaks in, in nominal yields. But, but what's happened is that there's been a significant slowing in, in the rate of change. So rates volatility, as, as we uh, effectively, as inflation topped out and uh, it became clear that the Fed was getting nearer to its terminal rate, nearer to the end of the hiking cycle, uh, rates volatility came down a long way. The, the, the fears at the time over an energy crisis uh, and a recession in Europe uh, and a China that was uh, seemingly stuck in in lockdown, those have all unwound, uh, contributing effectively to an elimination of, of left tail events in in the market's perception. You know that that, that does that does matter uh, a, a lot. Everyone was extremely bearishly positioned at the beginning of the year, uh, and risk appetite was very low. Goldman Sachs have done some excellent work showing that for a sixty forty portfolio. That sentiment and positioning is is the single best uh, predictor ex ante of of returns for a sixty forty portfolio. So, for me, we need to we need to remember that we're in a hyper financialized era. The what what financial markets see uh, is absolutely critical to how they perform. So, the fact that uh, these tail events have been eliminated, that volatility has come down a long way, has contributed to a significant re-leveraging in markets that has muted the impact of the Fed's tightening. So the compression in credit spreads uh, does lower borrowing costs for corporates, uh, despite the fact that the Fed is hiking. The rise in equity markets does send a positive signal to CEOs whose share prices are rising, to consumers whose portfolios are getting bigger. This uh, has a kind of a momentum of its own. And so the market has been able to defy this huge rise in the risk-free rate um, because of a, a re-leveraging dynamic that, you know, I think importantly, this tells you something about our outlook, uh, is, is largely exhausted. Um, and quite soon what you'll be left with is the sort of the naked reality of a 5.5% risk-free rate and uh, north of 2% real yields. Interesting. And <clears throat> I mean, you touched on kind of constructing portfolios without relying on having to call the timing of, of these events. Um, so I'm just curious. So, I mean, practically then from a kind of a portfolio positioning perspective, 
given what you're saying? Is it um, give us a sense on how you kind of deal with that market backdrop of something you feel will eventually uh, run out of steam, but 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 you're not quite sure whether it's this month or next month or in six months' time? Is that where your kind of protective strategies uh, come into play? Absolutely. So if if we leave aside our structural views uh, on on inflation, which, which we can come back to, uh, and look at what is this cyclical dynamic that we're describing, um, I think if you had to put it in a sentence, I would say that there are almost no risk premia in the market that are commensurate with both the level of risk-free rates, i.e. the competition from non-risk, and the breadth of potential outcomes in economic and inflation terms from here. So the portfolio construction that should follow off the back of that is one that is uh, heavily allocated to the risk-free rate. Um, It's important to remember that the risk-free rate is rising very, very sharply in, in real terms. Uh, adjusted for inflation from from a from a trough of minus eight percent in May last year to uh, north of two percent now, and it would also be expected in your portfolio that you would be broadly short of risk premia, um, and that uh, that gets you to a core of our portfolio construction at the moment. Quite high levels of short dated bonds, uh, around two fifths of the portfolio, and a number of derivatives that in their impact are long of volatility or uh, effectively uh, long of spreads, i.e. expecting risk premia to widen. So that's uh, equity markets to fall, credit spreads to rise, uh, that sort of thing. Now, if I finish there, as I say, that would be <laughs> that would be a portfolio that was kind of timing things pretty, pretty aggressively. So we have to ask ourselves what are the uh, dynamics that could cause risk to continue to enjoy life and we think that continued strong economic growth uh, or strong economic outturns is is the most likely scenario for us to be wrong about being bearishly positioned and so the least financial market sensitive but economically sensitive assets that we can find are what we've paired uh, on the other side of the portfolio. And that's things like uh, crude oil exposure, uh, copper exposure, and commodity-related currencies like the Australian dollar uh, alongside energy equities. Now, we are lucky, I guess, at the moment in that the risk-free rate is so high that you can pay for quite a lot of uh, what is effectively tail protection just from the carry at the moment. And we are taking advantage of that uh, I think the, and, and we can come back to the, the structural assets, but the asset that I haven't mentioned is a, is a significant position in the Japanese yen, uh, which is a helpfully kind of two-headed investment. Um, in in the, the short term, it's behaving just as duration. Uh, and, and so it's selling off pretty sharply alongside bonds. But, and, and so if, if there's a, a recession or, or bonds start to work, you should expect good returns from the yen, but it also has effectively an event risk uh, in its favor, which is that the Bank of Japan are forced to lift the cap uh, or forced to stop intervening 
uh, in the 10-year market or indeed that they start raising deposit rates uh, off of the, uh, well, from below the zero lower bound. That we think is the kind of two-headed investment that will uh, carry the portfolio in, in multiple environments. Very good. Um, so obviously, you, you know, it sounds obviously you're very defensively positioned and um, I mean, you touched on the risk to, to the to the portfolio is the, um, I, I suppose, our ongoing economic growth. And I mean, it's interesting, you, you talk about kind of the comparison of this year versus say the, the, the peak of the pain last year around September, uh, early October. And, you know, maybe if you were to characterize last year it was very much these concerns around stagflation which were very much to the fore uh, and, and certainly heading into the winter in, in Europe as well whereas this year you know economic performance has held up so anybody betting on a on a, on a soft landing or even a, a Goldilocks scenario has been rewarded and we've had the additional fill-up of um, this boom around AI as well has been a potential uh, productivity enhancer as well, so um, it's kind of kind of flipped from stagflation to, to Goldilocks in in the space of uh, uh, kind of twelve months. It sounds like you're skeptical skeptical of, of of that Goldilocks AI boom being sustained. But tell us why. You'd you'd be correct. the The AI narrative is uh, a particularly interesting one because uh, it does two things with respect to real yields. Firstly, it, uh, in theory, it allows for a higher clearing level of real yields in the economy. AI is a, is a productivity enhancing technology. Uh, therefore, um, the economy can uh, cope with higher real yields. Uh, it's a more productive economy. I'll come back to why we, we don't think that's, that's correct. Um, but secondly, it has allowed the, the NASDAQ, or more specifically, uh, NASDAQ valuation multiples to disconnect from the prevailing level of real yields in a way that they haven't done for uh, over a decade. Uh, as real yields have continued to rise this year, the NASDAQ has continued to get more expensive. Um, and the reason that AI uh, allows that is that, you know, what, what's the kind of variable, what's X in the background there that allows for this to happen? It's a sharp rise in earnings expectations. And that's AI allows you to to explain that. As as I said before, I, I think it's actually been uh, a significant releveraging or, or allocation to risk in financial markets uh, that has permitted this defying of gravity. Uh, if we if we wind back to uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in March, that was uh, an event that saw sharp rise in uh, implied correlation in, in, in US equity markets, um, despite the fact that it was very disparate in its impact. Uh, so w- what happened in the months following S- SVB, uh, financials performed very, very poorly. Uh, it was a banking crisis after all, and tech uh, and staples, companies that perceived as recession-proof, uh, outperformed significantly. I.e., a significant rise in equity market dispersion. Um, the people trading equity market dispersion, you know, the way they implement that trade results in a sale of volatility at the equity market level, uh, and you can see that pretty clearly in the trajectory of the VIX following SVB. And 
you know, who, who are the investors who are forced to react when the VIX falls, uh, vol control, vol targeting funds, the people for whom volatility is an input, they started allocating to risk through, through April. And once vol control people have been allocating for long enough, guess who has to come along afterwards? It's, uh, momentum players, uh, the systematic strategies that, that effectively algorithmically allocate to, uh, performing markets. So put all of this together, you've got a significant rise in systematic, uh, positioning CTAs, vol control, risk parity are all adding risk through April and May. And what you're presented with in June as a discretionary fund manager is a market that you are very far behind. Uh, or, or if you're a hedge fund, a market that you've probably been short of uh, and are feeling feeling the pain of that. And June saw really a sort of discretionary stop in as a result that continued through, through July. Uh, a fall in mutual fund cash balances, a fall in hedge fund shorts. Um, we think that that is what has allowed this significant dispersion between risk-free rates and real yields and and equity markets. So long way of answering your question uh, to say that AI is is a narrative attached to price. We think, you know, there, there are clearly, it does not say that AI isn't a thing. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's clearly, you know, like the internet, it's an adaptive general purpose technology that is almost certain to have very profound impacts on the economy. But it, it, it is not possible, I don't think, to say it is why the the stock market has performed the way it has uh, in this kind of six month period. You touched on um, you know, your reference, kind of the, the the more structural view, kind of behind uh, your thinking, and obviously the the cyclical view being that this run up has been more driven by by market dynamics um, as opposed to fundamentals. I guess to summarize. Equally, you know, there remains out there a split of opinion, as there always is in markets, around the kind of inflation, uh, disinflation, maybe uh, debate. Um, you know, obviously, maybe go, come back a year ago, the thoughts of uh, kind of inflation becoming embedded in the system, were, you know, were much more widespread. And, you know, people who have been looking for the immaculate uh, disinflation will probably feel that they've, they've got it so far. Where, where do you see that playing out? And it sounds like structurally uh, you have a view that, that, that of, of, of possibly higher inflation over time. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. I think if I had to put it simply, long-dated inflation risk premia are the only attractive risk premia uh, in markets today. We are going to be shifting to a different regime. Now, it's a regime, I think, importantly, of inflation volatility. Uh, we're not returning to the 1970s, um, not returning to an era of double-digit inflation, I don't think. But we are living in an increasingly inflation-biased economic system with a financial market that cannot cope with higher interest rates and a political system that cannot impose them. So the correct shift... Um, and this is this is stolen from Dario Perkins, uh, the very fine macroeconomist at TS Lombard. Uh, the, an inflation ceiling of two percent, which was the dynamic of the 2010s, becomes an inflation floor of two percent. What what else does that mean? Um, we shift from a regime characterized by an absence of inflation risk, uh, and, and 
you know, we can talk through the implications of that to a regime characterized by an ever-present inflation risk. So inflation might be low, and indeed, I think you can kind of feel this at the moment. Inflation is low uh, and certainly coming down. There's no real certainty over its future path. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of hope, but certainly it is not like the pre-COVID era where it was either two percent uh, or or it was lower. Why why are we of this view? There are three key dynamics. The first is that the disinflationary forces of the pre-COVID era, which economists call the disparate confounding dynamics, which is a sort of classic. Uh, economist way of making something quite simple seem very complex. Um, they they are waning uh, to zero and in some cases reversing. Primarily, that's China. China from the early 1990s through to the late 2010s was a country that had a repressed exchange rate regime. Uh, you know, they devalued the RMB by 40% in 1994. And, and broadly followed a weak currency policy thereafter. They took the proceeds of repressing their currency and put them into US treasuries, uh, repressing US interest rates. And they repressed the deposit rate in China in, for the banking system uh, in order to allow for uh, a huge movement of capital from depositors into investment um, and to allow them to effectively continually uh, add to supply capacity and to mop up bad debts. You know, we've called this the the, the deflation machine uh, that led to a huge uh, fall in developed market yields, uh, a great wave of cheap goods uh, onto global markets. Where we are today with China is, is essentially the reverse. They are drawing down their treasuries uh, in order to support the currency. The Chinese, uh, the average Chinese wage has, has risen tenfold uh, since the early 90s, and their banking system has had the deposit rate liberalised and, and is struggling to deal with bad debts. Um, I think we can, we can. There's not much you can say with certainty about China, but that their property sector is in difficulty is, is something I think we can get away with. Uh, on top of that, the the energy dynamics uh, of the last. Uh, 30 years, which broadly were characterized by a, a wave of cheap energy and cheap commodities, primarily out of the dissolving Soviet Union, kind of landing onto global markets, global economies. I think that's empirically in reverse. We, we've, you know, we blocked the export of those uh, commodities and energy from, from, from Russia. And net zero, which uh, has, has many many merits. We, we shouldn't forget that it is essentially a duplication of capacity. Uh, the, the, the system currently exists to furnish the world economy with its energy needs. Um, decarbonization involves duplicating that system. Uh, and even if it doesn't cost more, we're sort of separate debate, uh, you are adding a lot of redundancy to a system that, that doesn't currently need it. So I'm kind of lumping all of those uh, under end to disinflationary forces. The second key factor is that there is a distributional battle going on in the economy. Uh, this is something that is visible throughout human history. Uh, it, it's why I think 
history is such a an important lens for uh, investment. Whenever there is a battle between labor and capital and governments, inflation is the result, and it will continue um, until that battle is resolved. The quote from Ben Hunt, uh, who has been on your pod before, is that inflation, sorry, shortages are the first sign of inflation in the wild. And I think that's a really, it's so important, that concept. Uh, You know, if something is underpriced, it will be in shortage. Um, It won't be in shortage if it is, if its price rises. You know, why did we all run out of uh, loo paper at the beginning of COVID? It's not because there wasn't enough, it's because it was underpriced. So shortages of labor, otherwise known as, you know, very low unemployment, or most importantly, uh, strikes, I think are a perfect example of the degree to which wages are set to rise. Workers are asking for pay rises, getting them, and then going on strike. Uh, they're going on strike and they're getting pay rises as a result. Wage rises are always at the core of any durable inflationary episode. You know, capitalism and democracy are always in tension. Uh, democracy is a, a one-man, one-vote system, and capitalism is a one-dollar, one-vote system. At the moment, you know, having gone through a long era of capitalism being more powerful, uh, I think we're seeing what what happens if that gets to an extreme and democracy is starting to fight back or, or the one-person power is, is, is increasing. So final factor, the inability of governments and central banks to tighten properly. Governments can't afford higher interest rates because of the burden that it imposes on their budgets. Uh, we're already starting to see that uh, in the media. That's an absolutely classic historical signpost. Every time that you start to see governments complaining about the amount they have to spend on interest, it tells you that they're near to a point of either artificial interest rate repression or rate cuts. And markets themselves can't cope with higher interest rates on a sustained basis because of the widespread use of leverage and and illiquidity. So I don't think the market appreciates that final point very well. You know, the Fed is given a lot of credit, rightly for how they've reacted, but the Fed's tightening cycle hasn't had contact with the enemy yet. You know, they haven't been tested by a market sell-off, really, uh, or, or a recession. And it's only then that their reaction function will be revealed. And, and we're betting that they don't have the stomach uh, because they don't have political support to stay tight. Interesting. Um, there's a lot to, to delve into there. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, my own personal bias is probably to agree with much of what you said, but, you know, from doing this podcast and the Global Macro, you get to hear lots of different viewpoints. So I could push back on some of those points with some some comments that I've had from guests. So, you know, so, so maybe I'll throw a few at you, get your perspective. One, look at... Yeah, you know, I hear you. The China perspective, the disinflation, sorry, disinflation to inflation is probably the kind of the Jar- Charles Goodhart kind of argument around the labor force. But equally, we're, you know, we, we're, we've literally just seen deflation in China in, in the last uh, number of months. And, you know, there's also concern, as you point out, around the property sector and potential, you know, Japanification of, of China in the sense of high levels of debt there leading to a kind of a structural headwind growth and, uh, you know, I guess, uh, sub, you know, slower growth on an ongoing basis, which sounds um, not a very inflationary scenario 
Um, and equally, you know, China seems to continue to flood the global markets with, with, with cheap goods in the sense that you know, the EU now investigating uh, the, the infiltration of EVs from, from, from China into European markets and wh- why that's happening. So maybe that's, that just on, on, on China, on, on the kind of the capital versus labor point, Again, you know, we're in we're in a, in, a, in a month where we're seeing the UAW striking. It seems like a fair point to make. But equally, if we'd gone back a few, maybe a year or two years, people would have said, you know, the cost of doing business has gone down, cost of labor is lower. You know, we've got Zoom; people don't have to be physically present, and you've got uh, an economy characterized by a lot of high tech software development. That actually, there's going to be a surplus of capital because. You know, this is the explanation for the trend, long-term trend decline of bond yields. That, that capital can't be absorbed in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a in a kind of an economy where um, investment is, is kind of very capital efficient, and and there's not that demand for for for, for the capital. And then maybe the um, the final one, you know, I guess around the, the the energy and net zero pushback on that is is will it actually happen? You know, obviously. We've got a green agenda at the moment, and probably in the US, a, uh, a president who who is um, sympathetic to that. But you know, we've got an election next year. If you had Trump or some or something equivalent coming back, um, could that all be put on hold? So, so maybe just get 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 your thoughts on the risks to your own scenario in terms of that kind of structural inflation view. Absolutely, and and you know there are plenty of risks, uh, but we shouldn't forget the most. The most brilliant thing about financial markets is that everything has a probability or an odds applied to it in the form of a price. For me, that's why investing is so interesting. You can be right, but still lose money. And you can be wrong, uh, but still make money uh, if if the price that you're paying is right. Uh, put put another way, uh, a good idea can be turned into a bad investment by by price. And you know why is that relevant here? Because long-dated inflation break-evens are still at 2%. Uh, if you think of those as uh, the market's assessment of central bank credibility, you know that is the market saying, "I believe the Federal Reserve has the tools and the endurance to tighten sufficiently to return us to two percent, and that we'll stay there." And you know, to me, that's like a SpaceX rocket landing. Uh, you know, the, the SpaceX rocket takes off; it goes kind of a hundred thousand feet into the air. Uh, you know, well into space and comes back and lands on a ship in the middle of the sea. It, it's uh, an incredible feat, but y- you know you don't want to see the uh, the blooper reel <laughs> um, of, of when they misjudged it. So to, to take those points in turn, China is in a deflationary uh, moment at the uh, at this time, and Japanification is is certainly something that people are talking about. The mindset of the Chinese leadership is that they are terrified of inflation. It was uh, an important factor in the uh, civil unrest in in the early 90s um, and and late 80s. So they are very cautious uh, about anything that could lead to inflation becoming unanchored within China. Uh, So what what does that mean? Uh, it means that they are very cautious with stimulus at the moment. Uh, they can see the degree to which inflation is prevalent in the rest of the world, uh, albeit coming down. And they also they don't want to add uh, more debt into the system. They can see that they have 
huge levels of debt at the corporate layer level. Um, and so all the stimulus measures so far are, are pretty, pretty tentative. However, they are, are, are not stupid. And like the West, they recognize that a highly leveraged economy like their own is, is like a shark. A shark can't stop swimming because then oxygen doesn't pass over its gills. Um, and, and it, it dies. Uh, a highly leveraged economy, one with a lot of debt, must continue to have nominal expansion. Uh, otherwise, it suffers a, a debt deflation and a kind of a vicious spiral down. So they're trying to strike a balance between the two. To our mind, they are like the West in that they will prefer high uh, but not out of control inflation to any threat of deflation. So we're at a moment in time where it looks deflationary, but don't forget that low levels of inflation domestically gives them the uh, monetary space to absorb bad debts. Uh, you know, that's their historical playbook. And, you know, it's it's probable to our mind that they will stimulate eventually enough to, to restart the economy. That could involve a currency devaluation, which is a disinflationary force for the rest of the world, but, but we haven't, haven't seen that yet. And with, with regard to, to labor and the productivity boom uh, that is undoubtedly uh, ongoing, I think this is a, a classic example of where capitalism, which is a system designed to uh, produce goods and services more cheaply, uh, and comes into conflict with democracy, which uh, is a system where people vote for what they want. You know, if you, if you look at capitalism in the 19th century, on the whole, it made people richer by reducing the price of the goods that they were buying. Uh, that's what technology does. It's a, it's a deflationary force. It's, it's therefore arguably inconsistent with uh, an inflation target, um, which is one way that central banks attempt to resolve this uh, difficulty with, with democracy. However, when, when capitalism gets to an extreme, and I think that's where we are today or have been recently, democracy starts to fight back, and that's usually in the form of, of populism. That is exactly what we've seen both in terms of vote share, people moving towards the right, but also in terms of policies. Uh, the, the policies that governments are introducing are uh, not ones that favor efficient capital allocation. They're ones that favor nationalism or uh, policies, you know, uh, industrial policy that they may want to impose. And I think most importantly, governments are operating in the prior regime still. If you think about the credit crisis uh, or the COVID crisis, those were unequivocally deflationary events, uh, credit contraction, inflation falls uh, to, to negative levels in the case of the financial crisis. And that correctly had significant inflationary stimulus applied to it in the form of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. The energy crisis of 2022 uh, was an inflationary crisis, and yet it had the same policy prescription applied to it. Um, in, in Europe, people received subsidies. Um, in the UK, you know, you had uh, money literally taken off your, your energy bill uh, in California. The uh, state government gave subsidies as a, you know, to try and mitigate the effects of the high gasoline price. It, it's very, very simple economics. If you 
attempt to fight inflation by giving money to the people who are trying to buy something that's at a high price, you will not succeed in, in solving that inflation. So it's just the degree to which labor is starting to fight back against capital outweighs the productivity increases that technology is and always has brought to the table. Good stuff. Um, maybe just to shift gears a little bit, you mentioned at the outset um, studying history in uh, university. And I guess also for somebody who's come into the markets, you know, in 2011, you mentioned sometimes commentators make comments about fund managers who weren't around for the financial crisis and have only seen low yields. So I guess one way to address that is having studied history. I presume that's the case, but get your comment on that. You know, more generally, taking that historical lens, you know, whenever we talk about history, there's always that desire to draw parallels with the past and what does the current setup look most similar to? Do you think that's a useful perspective? And if so, where are the parallels? Where where are the differences now? Yeah, I think uh, it's a very useful perspective. I would argue it's the most useful perspective. One has to be very careful with historical parallels because the temptation is always to uh, draw them too closely to, to, to say that this is exactly like XYZ historical time period. Really, the correct observation, I think, is that what history shows you is that humans presented with similar events or similar incentives or similar setups will react in similar ways to how they have done in the past. What I've learned from from Jonathan Ruffer, our, our, our founder, uh, is that older perspectives uh, on money and markets, i.e. time-honored ones, are often the ones much more worth paying attention to because of the lucidity and the simplicity that they they offer. And you know, it it, it is always startling to me whenever I read a, a historical book how there is simply nothing new under the sun. Uh, the degree to which everything that we experience in financial markets, everything that we think is new, ZERP, yield curve control, these are all things that have been tried before and they always end the same way. There's a quote from John Locke writing in 1691, if ill husbandry has wasted our riches, we cannot hope simply by reducing the rate of interest to raise them to their former value. Put another way, if you've been wasting capital, you know, misallocating it, cutting rates to zero, just simply won't restore the wealth that you had. Uh, it might, might restore it in monetary terms, but it will be uh, less uh, fully collateralized. So what do I think is the the parallel for today? Albeit with the caveat that you, you can't over-extrapolate these things. Um, I think the 1940s and 50s provides a very uh, interesting lens through which to look at today. The 1920s saw a significant credit and stock market boom in the United States, uh, driven by interest rates that were set too low for the uh, economic setup of the time. The, the reason for that is, is, is broadly that the UK had gone back onto the gold standard at too high a price, and the Bank of England governor was leaning on the Fed to keep rates low to stop gold sort of pouring out of the country. Uh, So the Fed was too low, inappropriately low, uh, spawned this huge stock market boom, 
that eventually led to a banking crisis. And after the banking crisis, you had a period of malaise where it didn't really resolve very quickly. Uh, broadly, you were in a kind of low growth environment um, for a number of years until you had a very significant kind of world shock and very large fiscal stimulus in the form of the Second World War. I, I think there are relevant parallels there to the kind of the 2000s, you know, stock market boom from rates being set too low, banking crisis, period of stagnation, uh, world-changing event. That world-changing event in both cases uh, disrupted the supply side of the economy very significantly. It left people unable to spend money that they had. You know, you, you weren't allowed to travel in COVID, <laughs> but it's not, it's not like you could go to France uh, in, in 1942 either. Um, and so uh, when these events ended, you were left with a lot of surplus capital in people's hands, supply side disruption, you know, factories bombed rather than factories shut. And you saw in the 1940s and 50s, a very significant episodic inflation. It, it went from, you know, naught to 10, you know, back to back to naught, sometimes negative, back to 12, back to zero. Uh, it was very volatile. Things kind of continued in that vein, albeit smoothing for a time. Um, I think that's the period we've been through, one of high realized inflation, but not unanchored inflation expectations. I think what's going on at the moment is, is more akin to the 1960s, where the inflationary pressures are building. You can see that you know tightening attempts are happening around the world. We think that they will be unwound once the pain of tightening becomes apparent. And really, that is what embeds inflation, uh, is, is taking the handbrake off at 3.5% rather than 2 it, it, It's a process of higher highs and higher lows in inflation. That's what long-dated break-evens don't recognize, and I think that's the, uh, the investment opportunity. Okay, interesting. Um, now, obviously, you, you kind of talked about the post-war, you know, a lot of people draw a par parallel between what we've experienced with COVID. Obviously, it's not the same as World War II, but it was fighting a war of sorts, and the, the policy reaction was similar in terms of big jump up in debt. Um, one of the differences, I guess, you know, uh, post-World War II is, is that we had, I think, strong economic growth in that decade helped bring back the GDP uh, levels, um, which might be more difficult now. Um, you kind of touched on then the 60s as, as kind of the, the, I mean, obviously the 60s was that period of great success for a while in terms of macroeconomics and active uh, fiscal policy and, and kind of the belief in the Phillips curve and the ability to be able to exploit it. So there is that sense that we were something like that uh, going back a few years in terms of policymakers' belief that they could push up inflation to exactly 2.0%, uh, you know. So definitely take your, your your point there. I mean, one difference between all of this is maybe coming into, maybe not so much now, but certainly going back a year, valuations in financial markets were are, are, are still relatively high on, in terms of the equity side. Um, which is probably an outlier relative to to, to, to those periods you talked about. You know, I'd say P multiples must have been very low after World War II. So, I mean, when you're taking that historical lens and some factors line up, but then there's something quite distinct. Whereas if you're to take it, maybe a financial markets perspective, you might have said, you know, at the, at the end of 2020, uh, 
one, things looked like 1999 from the technology boom perspective. How, how, how do you kind of balance, you know, financial market uh, trends versus macro trends uh, and all of these things when, when you're trying to look for insights from history, I guess? Yeah, well, what's useful is to look at what the differences are to today. Um, as you say, the 40s, 50s, 60s, very strong, especially nominal uh, GDP growth helped to reduce the debt GDP ratio very very quickly. Um, what did they have then, which we do not have today? Uh, credit controls, an environment of high inflation uh, and effectively negative real rates is, is a very effective way of reducing debt burdens unless uh, people are able to issue credit. Uh, you know, if there's a prevailing negative real rate in the economy, people will borrow. They are incentivized to do so. And the, the, the immediate post-war era, one of very tight capital currency credit controls was one where you could have high inflation and high growth and deal with debt because no one was allowed to issue more debt. As we know, uh, if you had to characterize 2021 uh, in a sentence, I think you know a significant amount of issuance, equity and debt would be pretty accurate. So you know, our, one of the things we do here is to try and think in different time horizons to the market. I think looking over the horizon uh, that's something that we have to be aware of. How do governments try and engineer financial repression to deal with their own debt burdens without also uh, incentivizing the rest of the economy to borrow? Valuations is a, is a key lens, obviously. Um, the equity risk premium hit somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 basis points in, in the 50s, I, I very, very high. Arguably, bond market was... was uh, repressed in that era, which you know, will, will artificially increase the, the equity risk premium, just like Japan today. But the US equity risk, the US real equity risk premium today is is one and a half percent. Historically, the 10-year uh, excess real return that you should expect from equities, if the equity risk, the real equity risk premium is at one and a half percent, is one and a half percent. Now, that's a pretty poor uh, risk reward, um, you know that that's wrong if earnings increase significantly, but you know margins are at extremely high levels. Uh, everything is priced pretty, pretty, pretty well. Um, most companies are very well run. You know the balance sheets are optimized, uh, the supply chains are lean. Uh, so that doesn't look like a asymmetric place to have capital allocated to us, um, especially given the competition from. Uh, risk-free real rates, which is obviously incorporated into the real ERP, but uh, the way you sit in risk terms is very, very different. You touched on financial repression, and it's been uh, certainly an important topic and theme, I would say, ever since we had this jump up in debt levels since uh, COVID. And I mean, there has been a general sense that this might be how we, we ultimately bring debt levels down over time. Um, Barry Eichengreen had a paper that he presented at Jackson Hole and he was kind of basically saying that high debt levels are here to stay because he, I, I think his view was financial repression was easier maybe to implement structurally back back in the 60s, 70s um, for various reasons. I mean, you, you had maybe control over interest rates and as you say, sorry, deposit rates as well. Uh, I mean, what's... 
What's your thoughts on that as to practically how financial repression may be implemented this time around? Um, and would you see that as being the likely uh, scenario over the next kind of 10, 10, 15 years? Yes, is the short answer. Uh, I do think it is likely because I think the true meaning of deglobalization is not deglobalization of supply chains. You know, that, that may happen. It's deglobalization of capital flows. And that, that is one of the ways in which capital can be kind of kettled uh, and made to serve the purpose of governments. And sorry, is that, you mean capital controls effectively? Um, well, it, you know, if, if the US government says you may not invest in China, is that, is that a capital control? You know, it's not, it's not seen as you can't take your money out of the country, but by eliminating a destination, it, it, it has a similar, similar impact. Um, and that, I think, gets you to the most likely way in which uh, governments begin financial repression. They recognize that the most explicit form of financial repression, yield curve control, you know, or forward guidance or QE, uh, does have dangerous impacts on the currency uh, if you're in a high inflation era. So it's macro proof, I think, is the most likely um, tool. So we have been living in an era of financial repression for a very long time, you know, real yields being negative. And one of the ways that governments achieve uh, forced buying of government bonds is through regulation. Even now, people are very skeptical of the idea that the government could force savings institutions to buy government bonds. You know, that is seen as a kind of something from a bygone era. But that that is exactly what Basel III, Solvency II, uh, all of the regulatory frameworks that have come in, you know, with the objective of stabilizing institutions, or, or certainly that's the labeled objective, but the impact is just to force a greater and greater reallocation from all assets into government bonds. So, you know, the path is, is well trodden. Um, and I think that is a tool that they will not be afraid to use. Um, there are kind of attempts to go the other way. In, in the UK, they are saying, you know, you should be reallocating from bonds to growth equity, uh, which, which seems a sort of fabulous example of uh, government's ability to time time markets. But, uh, you know, this is, I think that is something that they will absolutely continue to use. Uh, we will probably see it first or, or next in, in Japan uh, as they try and release uh, themselves from the straitjacket of yield curve control. You know, whether it's a soft tap on the shoulder of the guy running uh, Mitsubishi Bank to start putting some of his capital into the JGB market, or whether it's explicit regulation, uh, the the impact is 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 the same. Pretty good. Um, I'm just conscious that we're running up on time. Um, and before we let uh, guests go, it's always good to to get kind of um, some different perspectives on uh, advice. And obviously, uh, for people kind of starting off in the industry, or maybe people more generally uh, who are interested in learning more about how history applies to financial markets, which seems to be a particular favorite of yours. Any particular advice around that or any books uh, that you feel were particularly uh, influential in, in your own journey in markets? Books are essential. Uh, probably the most important ingredient for a successful career in financial markets is intellectual curiosity, because what that tends to bring with it is intellectual flexibility, because you read so many different perspectives. And, and ultimately, with macro investing, if you are inflexible, uh, the market will just push you to the wall. 
the books that I think have been most important for me in contextualizing what's going on today are uh, The Price of Time by Edward Chancellor, who I know has been on the, the pod before. Uh, it, it is just the most uh, fabulous encapsulation of the degree to which we've seen it all before. Policymakers have tried what they're trying now for honestly thousands of years. <laughs> uh, and what's so brilliant is that he cites, I think, a tablet uh, from Hammurabi's code that sets you know, the maximum interest rates uh, on, on borrowings. I.e., the first example of uh, financial regulation and immediately the first form of regulatory arbitrage forms underneath it. So human history is just this continuous cycle of governments trying to push things one way, humans working out how to make it go the other way, and, and the, the volatility that results. So that's, that's uh, pretty essential. Lords of Finance uh, is, you know, it's a pretty commonly recommended book, but it does give you the best uh, account of the monetary dynamics from the end of the, the gold standard to the post-Bretton Woods uh, era. And that's, I think that's vital to understanding how monetary policy, um, you know, international uh, capital flows are likely to play out in the future. And long-term investment, especially from a capital preservation perspective, you know, if you want to deliver generational wealth preservation to carry your wealth through time, to carry your clients' wealth through time, you need to be able to imagine things that seem unimaginable today because they've all been tried. <laughs> uh, and I, I think we're, we're going to go back to the unimaginable um, and Boards of Finance has got plenty of examples of, of what that looks like. Great stuff. Well, there are two, two great suggestions. Um, so thanks very much, uh, Matt, uh, for coming on today. This has been a terrific conversation. Um, so make sure to follow Matt's uh, work uh, because it's um, important, obviously, in today's world. It's an ever-changing financial landscape. Uh, so to consider all these aspects when we're allocating capital. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks very much for tuning in, and we'll be back soon with more exciting episodes. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.